from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. It was 80, it has been 80 years since the Japanese surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, which drew America into World War II. With the World War II generation all but departed, does America still have at its core the ability and will? to pull together to defend our nation against the threats of the 21st century. FRC's Executive Vice President, retired Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin, joins us for that conversation. And World War II veteran and former Kansas Senator and Republican presidential candidate Bob Dole died on Sunday. He was 98. We'll talk with former Kansas Governor and Senator Sam Brownback, who succeeded Dole in the Senate, about his fellow Kansan later on this edition of Washington Watch. And speaking of the military, Republicans and Democrats have reached an agreement on the National Defense Authorization Act that has been at an impasse over several issues, including forcing women to register for the draft through the Selective Service. That Selective Service provision for women was removed last night, allowing the measure to advance. Missouri Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler, a member of the House Armed Services Committee, and Missouri Senator Josh Hawley did an amazing tag-team effort getting the provision removed. We'll talk to both of them from Capitol Hill in just a moment. And yesterday, we discussed the Biden administration's announcement of a, boy a diplomatic boycott of the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing. The boycott is over China's human rights abuses, especially their treatment of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang province. Chinese officials have been dismissive of the claims, but a recent review of leaked documents from the Chinese Communist Party by German academic uh, Adrian Zenz reveals a direct link to the human rights abuses in Xinjiang and President Xi Jinping. Adrian Zen joins us with more details in just a moment. TonyPerkins.com is the website. Today's Stand Mug giveaway winner is Melissa from Pennsylvania. Melissa shared this. We stand for life, pre-born, born, and older. We have biological kids, foster kids, and adopted kids. All lives matter to me and to God. In our 60s, we still take in kids and teens who need us. God is good and provides. Well, Melissa, thanks for sharing, sharing that, and congratulations on winning the stand mug. And folks, I'll tell you a little bit later how you can win a stand mug. All right, as I mentioned uh, last night, a provision in the National Defense Authorization uh, Bill was removed. It was a result of the, of the hard work of Missouri Congresswoman uh, Vicki Hartzler, who is a member of the House Armed Services Committee, and she joins us now from Capitol Hill. Uh, Vicki, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you, Tony. It's good to be here. And I know you have to go in just a few minutes to actually speak on the House floor about this measure. Uh, but give us the latest on the National Defense Authorization Act and what provisions were removed. Well, I'm very, very pleased that we were able to remove the provision that would have required all of our uh, daughters and sisters and women to have to start registering for the draft. We also got rid of a red flag provision that was very problematic. And there's a lot of good things left in this bill that go after China, that make sure we have the capabilities we need. But this 
this drafting windman provision was just uh, unnecessary. Uh, we have an all volunteer force now that is serving our country very, very well. 17% uh, of our military already are women who have stepped up and voluntarily served. And the main reason that they wanted to insert this was so-called so, so uh, equality, to prove that women are equal. And that's just uh, silly. It's ridiculous. I mean, women are equal now, and certainly in the sight of God, and they contribute in every way uh, to American life. So we don't have to start drafting our daughters in order to prove equality. And I'm glad that uh, cooler heads prevailed. We were able to get this uh, out, and now we can just focus on the real concerns, which are Russia and China, uh, Kim Jong-un, and uh, terrorist threats. Uh, final question for you, Congresswoman Hartzler, before you have to go to the floor to speak on this measure. Is there anything else in the NDAA that you feel is still calls for concern, or have most of the problem areas been addressed? Most all of them have been addressed. It is very, very positive bill now. I was very, very pleased. I'm chairman of the House Values Action Team. And my team and I scrubbed the uh, earlier version, and we had multiple pages of concerns that we had. Uh, we, we presented those. We've been advocating for those in conference. And uh, we are very pleased that I would say 98% of them are out. Uh, certainly the things that are left are things that we can work with. So uh, this is a very, very good bill at this point. It provides a pay raise for our service members. It pluses up the top line because, as you know, President Biden uh, was actually cutting our military at a time we're facing unprecedented threats. And so we added another $25 billion so that we can keep on that track of getting a 355-ship Navy. Uh, we have additional airplanes, more bullets for our soldiers, everything they need. Uh, we've been able to advocate for successfully. So I'm very pleased and very thankful, uh, very thankful for all the people in this country that weighed in on these very important issues during our negotiations too, uh, to help us reach this point. Well, Congresswoman, I want to commend you for a job well done. I know we have many, many conversations uh, about this, and I know you've been working very intently uh, to see these issues addressed, and you did just that. So uh, thanks so much for the work, and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I know you're really on a tight schedule, so thanks for uh, joining us today. Thank you, Tony, and all the work that you have done and Family Research Council on this issue and, and many issues. We appreciate you as well. All right. Thanks so much, Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler of Missouri. And I want to thank uh, each of you for weighing in. FRC Action, our sister organization, uh, sent almost a quarter of a million um, communications through listeners of Washington Watch and our constituents to Capitol Hill to discuss this aspect of the NDAA. So uh, hats off to you for responding when we put out the word. Now, joining us from the, the Senate side is Missouri Senator Josh Hawley, who is a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee. In fact, in the committee, voted against the measure because of this provision, this selective service provision that would have forced women to register for the draft. And he had an amendment to take it out on the Senate floor. Of course, uh, the Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, was not allowing votes. So after uh, really hard negotiations, this provision came out. Senator Holly joins us now from the Senate. Uh, Senator, welcome to the program, and uh, congratulations on getting this provision out of the bill. Well, Tony, thanks so much for having me. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the negotiations to get this provision out. How difficult was it to get the Democrats to go along with removing this uh, forced registration provision for women? 
You know, I think at the end of the day that the Democrats didn't want to cast a vote that would have required daughters and wives and sisters. And by the way, we're talking about teenagers, 19, 21, 20 years old, to go out and register for the draft to fight America's wars. And, you know, if that would have been the price of passing the NDAA in the Senate, I said that I'm going to force a vote on this and we're going to put people on record because they should have to explain why it is that they want to carry out the largest expansion of the draft in American history and focus it entirely on women. At a time, by the way, Tony, when we're also seeing historic numbers of sexual assaults in the military, and what do the Democrats want to do? They want to draft more women. They want to force women to enter the military against their will. And my view is is that that was bad policy from the first and that they should have to answer the American people for it. I think at the end of the day, they didn't want to do that. You know, I, again, I, I commend you for standing up and forcing the issue because what I've seen far too often is that even on the Republican side of the of the aisle, there's a concern, oh, we don't want to make too big of an issue of this, and, and we just kind of go along with this, what I call this slide that the Democrats are taking us on in terms of moving away from these core values of America, which never I don't there's never any idea that America would be drafting its daughters to defend this nation. Again, we, we've talked about not opposed. If women want to serve and they do serve honorably, that is great. And my daughters want to go in the military. I encourage them to do so. But I would never, ever be in support of drafting our daughters and young mothers to serve in our nation's military by force. Well, and the truth is, Tony, that women have, have served honorably and vitally in our armed forces for years and years and years now, which includes my own sister, by the way, and have been involved in our warfighting efforts in critical ways back to the founding of our nation. But what we're talking about, what the left wanted to do is something very different. It's forced conscription of American women. And again, we're talking about very young women here. And for what reason? Is it because we don't have enough able-bodied folks already in the draft? No, that that wasn't the reason. Is it because that there was some desperate need to expand the draft at the largest expansion of American history? No, that that wasn't the reason. It's because of their cultural agenda. It's because of their social agenda. My view is the military shouldn't be an experiment in that way, and the Democrats should take their war on women's sports and their war on gender and their war on women somewhere else. Absolutely right. This is further blurring of the lines of gender, but... I mean, look, I'm, I understand the, uh, the uproar over women's sports, and I think women should be able to compete and get scholarships without the fear of having men chasing them down. But we're talking about national security. We're talking about a vital element of our nation being politicized and, as you said, being used for experimentation. So, Senator Holly, any other aspects of this bill that are problematic, or have they all been addressed? From your perspective, well, I, I want to study it closely, Tony. I mean, we haven't, we have yet to see the final text, and and I'm certainly not going to commit my vote until I see exactly what passes out of the House and, and gets over here to the Senate side. So this is a big, big bill, and there's always a lot of uh, yeah. pressure for folks to stick stuff in there that is that is problematic and objectionable. So I want to read it myself. I'm going to read it before I vote on it. I'm going to read it before I pledge my vote. So I want to see that and and see what we've ended up with. I will say that this is a big step forward, and I hope that the bill that the House passes will actually focus on our national defense and uh, not on uh, their trumped-up culture war and and not on uh, their pet projects. But listen, we've got a lot of major defense priorities and challenges right now, starting with China. We need to be focused on those. 
One, one final question for you, Senator Holly. Um, are, are there lessons that were learned here about when we force these issues that we can pre oftentimes prevail? Well, I do think that, that sunlight is the best medicine here, and I think that the American people deserve to know what is happening behind closed doors in these negotiations and what's happening when it comes to their national defense. And if their daughters are going to be drafted and their sisters and their wives and mothers are going to be drafted, Americans deserve to know about that. And, and it deserves to not just be tucked away in some giant bill that people only find out about it later, but they right. deserve to know who exactly is in favor of it and why. And so I think that bringing this out into the open and having a debate about it is the best way to do it because it gives people a chance to know what the stakes are in the way in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, Senator Josh Hawley, I, I commend you for your leadership in the Senate, and thank you for taking this on and not letting go of it until we got a positive outcome. Uh, my hat's off to you, and thanks so much for joining us uh, this afternoon. Thanks for having me. All right, uh, Senator Josh Hawley of uh, Missouri. I, I think one of the lessons here... Um, again, is, you know, some things we got to fight for. There are some things that are just non-negotiable. And when we defend these principles, we, we say, you know, it makes sense. And the American people follow along. So sometimes the fight is worth it. Now, I don't fight just to fight, but some things are worth standing up for. All right, coming up, this nation, uh, the week, uh, this week rather, uh, the nation will be honoring the late Senator Bob Dole of Kansas, who passed away on Sunday. I'll be talking with former Senator from Kansas, Sam Brownback, a fellow Kansan, about Senator Dole right after this. Don't go away. Hi, my name is Hannah. I'm serving as an intern here at Family Research Council and it's been a life-changing experience. Interns join FRC's team of experts as they embark upon a mission of advancing faith, family and freedom in public policy and the culture from a biblical worldview. The FRC internship is a 12 to 15 week program designed to educate university students who are passionate about public service and who believe that a biblical worldview is fundamental to the reformation of government and culture. Interns receive the opportunity to work alongside and be personally and professionally developed by FRC's team of experts. This paid internship offers free housing in the heart of DC, which allows students to be fully immersed in the fast-paced political climate and to build a community with other faithful conservatives in the nation's capital. For more information and to apply, visit frc.org internships. That's frc.org internships. Here's a moment of hope for your home with Jerry and Becky Drace. Do you know we live in a world of fear? It can paralyze even the strongest of people. Mary was afraid when she was told she was going to be the mother of Jesus. And Joseph, too, when he heard the news. Even the shepherds were afraid when the angels spoke and when they heard the angelic choir. So listen to Luke 2, verse 10. Then the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. The good tidings of the birth of Jesus removed all the fear from Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. A believer in Jesus Christ should not live in the spirit of fear, but in the power and authority of our living Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus was born, he not only brought us Christmas, he provided us the only way to live free of fear. His birth, life, death, and resurrection are the best tidings of Christmas. Learn more about the ministry of Jerry and Becky Drace at HopeForTheHome.org. 
This has been a moment of hope for your home. We can all relate to the discipleship impact Sunday School or VBS has had on our children's lives. The greatest journey is just like that, but with worldwide impact. Your gift of $6 provides evangelism and discipleship for children and multiplication of the church in more than 100 countries worldwide. Join with AFR and other listeners in this powerful outreach, sending the gospel into the corners of the world. Since 2009, as a result of this program, more than 12 million children have made decisions to follow Christ. $60 reaches 10 children. $150 reaches 25 children. Your donation provides instruction materials in 12 discipleship lessons in a child's own language, led by a teacher trained by Samaritan's Purse. Call 877-616-2396. That's 877-616-2396. Or donate online at AFR.net and help send children on the greatest journey. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. On Thursday, former Senator Bob Dole of Kansas will lie in state in the Capitol Rotunda, an honor that has been bestowed only on a few distinguished individuals. The World War II hero and longtime Senate Republican leader who passed away Sunday will then have a state funeral Friday at the Washington National Cathedral. He was 98 years old. In his final op-ed that was published yesterday, which uh, he began drafting in October and finished two weeks ago, Senator Dole talked about how Democrats and Republicans during his years in Congress were political combatants as well as friends who could work together. And he noted how different the picture is now today. With me now to talk about that picture and to share his thoughts on the late Senator Bob Dole is former uh, ambassador for religious freedom, Sam Brownback, also served as governor of the state of Kansas as well as senator of Kansas. He took Bob Dole's seat in the U.S. Senate. Uh, Ambassador, senator, governor, welcome back to the program. Hey, Tony, it's always good to join you and uh, delighted to be able to talk about uh, Bob Dole. What a great American hero, a legend, and uh, certainly a favorite son of my state of Kansas. He certainly was, and I, and I think you knew him well. I, I knew him a little bit I back in 96 when he ran uh, for president. He came to Louisiana. I was just elected in the Senate race I was working in. He campaigned with us, so I got a chance to, to get, to know him, get to know him a little bit. Uh, but I, I admired him from the standpoint of his, his service to the country, a lifelong service to our country. But tell us a little bit about the, the personal side of Bob Dole that you got to know. He was a great guy. I mean, he was a deep patriot through and through. Uh, he and, and cared about his country to the very end. I talked to him on the phone uh, less than a month ago. I was supposed to go see him, but I was concerned about giving him COVID, so I didn't go see him. Uh, but we, we were talking about the country then, and then we prayed together at the end of the, the conversation. I asked him if we could pray together, and he said, wish you would. And uh, just a, a deep, you know, that that generation of faith that you just you lived it, you didn't talk too much about it, uh, but was God-fearing, I guess I would put it uh, that way. Uh, he, he really, I thought, was the iconic figure, the embodiment of the World War II generation, that greatest generation. He will be sorely missed. It was interesting in his last 
op-ed that he wrote that was uh, just recently published. He talked about freedom and, and coming together over an understanding of freedom. And he talked about the, the political divide. And, and I think you've seen it. I've seen it in my time in the political sphere that there is a division in this country that is extremely pronounced. And, and politics is, is a bit different than when Bob Dole first entered politics back in the 60s. Oh, it's a lot different. Even from when I was in the Senate, where I took uh, Senator Dole's seat, I did bipartisan bills on topics that there was bipartisan agreement on, like human trafficking. The first human trafficking bill I did with the late Paul Wellstone. Uh, you know, if, we, if you could do things like that, if it wasn't kind of a core topic that there was a battle about, we found ways to get together. And now you, you can't even hardly find ways to get together on, on things that you agree on. Uh, which is a real terrible uh, tragedy for the country. And I think, honestly, Tony, uh, there is a bipartisan majority in the country to have people to get together on the things we agree upon and move forward. It's just politics has tended to permeate everything anymore, even sports so much that it's hard to find agreement on a football team. When you look at uh, Bob Dole's generation of Republican leaders, there there is no question. In fact, Bob Dole himself, I think back in 2014 in an article, um, in an interview rather, said, um, you know, today's Republicans are a lot more conservative than when I was in office. I, I think you can clearly see that, that the Republican Party has become more conservative. And, of course, the Democratic Party, I would argue, has become more liberal. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. I, and and I, I think some of the stuff that the progressives in the Democrat Party are pushing are just, I can't understand it. At least the stuff before, I could kind of, you know, I see where you're getting to that. But I just don't understand where they're going to or what they want to try to get to. And so you really do have this huge divide. Uh, it is a more conservative Republican Party. It's a progressive party in the Democrat side that is out of step with most of America, the main street of America. Right. Uh, and so now you've got this, this um, really huge divide, which makes it so much harder for, uh, for people to get together. I, I don't know. I really don't know the answer to it. One of the things that Bob Dole did do that I think we need to do a lot more of is building relationships. He had relationships, good relationships, solid ones across the aisle. And that's certainly something we can emulate and need to follow and do. That would help the divide. You know, I, I've had the conversations with, I've had the kind of the benefit of kind of being a bridge between some generations. And I've had a chance to, to get to know Bob Dole and, I, and, and John McCain and, uh, and a number of others. And, you know, one of the questions that I, I like to probe is, you know, why are things, why are, why is the Republican Party more conservative today? Why is the Democratic Party, which say, shouldn't say liberal, more leftist? But the, the issues are really driving it. In, in some of these issues today, you, you, you have to take a stand on one side or the other. There's, there's really no middle well, ground with some of these issues. That's true. Like abortion, the case last week that the Supreme Court took up on the Dobbs case that the, I pray will overturn Roe versus Wade. The left is just in a uh, to that. They say, no, you know, we want Roe left in place, even though that was an invented constitutional right to a right to an abortion. It's not in the Constitution. Well, there's no middle 
uh, to find on that. Now, I hope looking forward uh, that people will recognize that that life begins when it yeah. begins and and uh, not your time. So that's certainly a piece of it. But Tony, we could agree on things that aren't quite that divisive, and I think we ought to find a way to do it. Yeah, I, I do think culturally, though, we've actually reached a stronger consensus on life. Maybe not politically, but culturally, I think America has shifted more to the pro-life column. Uh, Senator Brownbaum, S- Senator Sam Brownback, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us today. Happy to do it. God bless you, Tony, and God bless Bob Dole. All right. Merry Christmas, my friend. Sam Brownback of, uh, of Kansas, a great, uh, great American. All right, when we come back, another great American joins us. Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin joins me in studio to talk about what happened 80 years ago, the attack on Pearl Harbor. Don't go away. More Washington Watch to come. Most of your money. Here's Dan Celia on American Family Radio. Well, we've got some economic data coming out this week. Job openings come out on Wednesday. They're sitting at 10.4 million. They're expected to go to 10.5 million. Get worse. So, look, another huge, huge problem. They want to stimulate the economy. 10.5 million is a record number of job openings during any economy in the nation's history. What exactly are they going to do to stimulate that? Job quits are at 4.4%. Look, quits are never a problem during a thriving economy. There's always some turnover that's a healthy thing for the American economy. And so when quits are to move on to a different position, that's a different thing. That's not happening right now. So the government has done a masterful job incentivizing people to be dependent upon the government. And then we're wondering why we have these numbers. Well, they're blaming on inflation. They're blaming on the pandemic. That is wearing thinner and thinner, and they're not going to be able to continue to do that a whole lot longer. The big number is Friday. It is consumer price index. We are sitting at 6.2%. That's inflation, folks. They're expecting it to go to 6.7. If it goes higher than 6.2, it is not going to be good for the markets. So that is probably the most important number of the week. Yes, we get a core inflation number. But it's not one we're going to think a whole lot about. Want to hear more financial advice from Dan Celia? Look for his podcast at AFR.net. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So glad that you have joined us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Today, our nation observes a somber milestone, the 80th anniversary of the infamous attack on Pearl Harbor that drew the United States into World War II. On December 8th, 1941, the day following the attack on Pearl Harbor, President Roosevelt addressed Congress and the nation. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy 
the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. He concluded that address by calling upon Congress to declare a state of war on Japan, and Congress responded to that request by approving it with an 82 to 0 vote in the Senate and a 388 to 1 vote in the House. Looking back, what should we keep in mind and hold to heart on this day of remembrance? Joining me now to talk about this is FRC's Executive Vice President, Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin, who served in the United States Army for 36 and a half years and was one of the original members of the U.S. Army's Delta Force. And uh, both his, uh, well, his uncle was at Pearl Harbor. His father was also a World War II veteran. General, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tony. Uh, we were just talking about, you know, that speech that uh, President Roosevelt made. It really is a day that's lived in infamy. Absolutely. And this may have been his finest hour uh, as he led this nation, which was absolutely devastated by the events at Pearl Harbor, as he right. led this nation not only to war, but he, he led them to a, a, a resurrection of their confidence. Right. Because we had been a, a nation right. that had been in depression. Uh, right. We had gone through a very difficult time, right. uh, and then we were attacked. We didn't have a we didn't have a military really to speak of. No, that's that's true, and that's why uh, you know there's God bless the young men and, and and women that stepped forward and said, "Here am I, send me," because our military really was not up to taking on any country outside our borders uh, at that time of uh, Pearl Harbor. Let's fast forward 80 years, you know, we've got challenges, but, I mean, you look at the vote in Congress, it was almost unanimous, one vote out of both chambers opposed to declaring war on Japan. I don't think you could get that type of agreement on anything in our Congress today. No, Tony, that's uh, absolutely right. I, I, we've never been more divided, uh, you know, in our in, in our general society, but also in our Congress, and uh, yeah, I mean, you, you can, you and I could sit here right now and make a list of those that would vote against uh, any any declaration of war against any enemy for anything for any reason. That's exactly right. And uh, look, this was uh, this was a devastating blow to America. But what this did was it brought about a change and and just a geopolitical change in the whole world. Mm -hmm. Uh, three year, three years and nine months after that. It's an amazing time span. That's right. I mean, short time span that we were right. able to, that America was able to basically start a war machine, if you will, manufacturing right. and and put men onto the battlefield with the equipment necessary to win. And, That's right. And, and really, you could make the argument that America saved Western civilization. I guarantee you we saved Western civilization. And and, and people don't realize that we came this close, this close to being defeated. Because if those carriers had been in Pearl Harbor yeah. at the time, Midway never would have occurred, not, not, not the way it occurred in the outcome of Midway, which was the turning point in the, in the Pacific War. If they had bombed our submarines that were there at Pearl Harbor, uh, we would have had a, a limited capability to to even go out against the Japanese Navy, and and if uh, they had waited until our 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 uh, 
carriers were in the port and and destroyed those carriers would have been awful. You could argue divine providence that divine uh, providence that uh, preserved America, but then saw the nation through. In fact, uh, you know, oftentimes we on on uh, D Day we yeah. uh, play the the prayer yeah. of uh, President Roosevelt that he led the yeah. nation in. Could America, I mean, are we at a, a dangerous point where we cannot come together based upon external threats like we did as a nation in World War II? I thought after 9-11 that we did come together. I thought America came together. I mean, there was, uh, there was some dissension, and, but I, th I thought we did come together. But that was also 20 years ago. Where are we today? I'm having trouble discerning a scenario where uh, a, a major attack on this country would bring us back to where we were in, uh, after D-Day, I mean uh, after Pearl Harbor, or where we were after the attack on 9-11. It's a dangerous place to be as a nation because if we can discern that, so can our enemies. Don't think that they aren't watching that. I. I said earlier on a TV program today, look, the, the, the Russians and the Chinese know us far better than we know them. They watch us. They study us. Their analysts uh, will take one, they'll have a whole team of analysts on one individual, like Joe Biden. They know us and uh, don't think that they don't yeah. calculate uh, when they're thinking of doing something that they know we're opposed to. They calculate that. General Jerry Boykin, thank you. Uh, thank you for your service, and thanks for joining us today uh, on this occasion to talk about the 80th anniversary of uh, Pearl Harbor. Thank you. All right, folks, stay with us. On the other side of the break, we're going to be talking about new information coming out of documents leaked from the Communist Party in China. Don't go away. More Washington Watch to come. For centuries, the Bible has inspired humanity and shaped the very world we live in. But how do we know this book is the Word of God and not merely the words of men? What we believe about the Bible is based on what we believe about its source. The God Who Speaks explores the evidence of the Bible's inspiration and authority through some of the world's most respected biblical scholars. We have essentially a dual authorship. So it's true to say that Paul wrote Romans. It's equally true to say that God wrote Romans. He says, we saw this, and that sets the Bible apart from almost everything else in the ancient world and its religious pantheon of gods and goddesses. The God Who Speaks is a feature-length documentary from the American Family Association. Available now at thegodwhospeaks.org. In His Image, delighting in God's plan for gender and sexuality. I loved it. I loved how biblically sound it was, all the scripture to back it up. The testimonies were very powerful. If it's a prodigal child that has just run away or one that's caught up in same-sex attraction, there's hope in Jesus. In His Image is now available on DVD and can be purchased in bulk to pass out to friends and family. Order today by visiting afastore.net. Hello, I'm Don Hawkins, here to tell you about Encouragement Live, 55 minutes of industrial strength radio encouragement featuring resourceful guests plus practical biblical insights to help you face life's challenges. 
we'll be taking your phone calls. So plan to join us for Encouragement Live, Saturdays at 7.05 p.m. Central, 8.05 p.m. Eastern, here on American Family Radio. The following are real-life stories from Trinity Debt Management. My story begins with debt, a lot of debt. I used my credit cards as a source of income. It was not a good situation. I couldn't pay my bills. The interest on the cards was really high. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-788-1813. I initially was scared to call, and immediately I felt relief. They contacted all of our creditors, and they put us on a plan for success. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. I've been able to pay off close to $15,000. We're doing a lot better. Please pick up the phone and see how affordable and easy it is to pay off your debt. It's a godsend. We're debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-788-1813. That's 1-800-788-1813. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas everywhere. I'm tempted to sing, to join Bing in singing, but uh, I'll refrain. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. Good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, uh, again, let me announce today's Stand Mug winner. Over the next uh, three three more days, uh, through the 10th of uh, December, we'll be giving away each day a stand mug. Now, this is a mug, 15 ounces, made in the USA. All right, you can see it boldly stamped on the bottom, made in the USA. And today's winner is Melissa of uh, Pennsylvania. If you would like to enter a chance to win the stand mug, Text the word MUG to 67742. That's 67742, and just follow the links over. Uh, message uh, send rates vary. Uh, messages and da- data rates may apply. Reply stop to cancel. Help for help and visit frc.org slash text for terms and conditions of our privacy policy. I'm required to say that. All right. Uh, not everybody can win one, though, but you can still find out how to get one. Go to TonyPerkins.com. Also, coming up uh, very soon is our second two-year journey through the Bible. Stand on the Word. We'll be uh, releasing that information here in the next week or so, so be sure and uh, invite others to join us on this two-year journey through the Bible. You can find out more about it at frc.org slash Bible. This Thursday, an independent fact-finding effort based in London called the Uyghur Tribunal will issue a judgment based upon its investigations on the atrocities against Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslim peoples of China's Xinjiang province. Ahead of that, the group recently published transcripts from a cache of leaked Chinese government documents known as the Xinjiang Papers. The cache was first discovered, or disclosed rather, in the New York Times, which received 403 pages of the previously secret documents from a member of the Chinese political establishment. Now, the Times published a story in November of 2019, along with about a dozen pages from the cache. But it appears now that the Times may have intentionally withheld documents that paints a fuller picture. Joining me now to talk about what he found in the 317 pages that the Uyghur Tribunal uh, was able to obtain is Dr. Adrian Zins, 
who was commissioned by the Uyghur Tribunal to review and analyze the documents. Dr. Zinn's works for the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation and has been at the forefront of the effort to gather and publish evidence about the mass detention and repression being done by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, Dr. Zenz, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you. Uh, before we get into the element of the documents and what's in the documents, tell our viewers a little bit more about the Uyghur Tribunal and the World Uyghur Congress that requested this investigation back in June of 2020. The World Uyghur Congress is a body that represents uh, Uyghurs around the world who live outside of China or more recently have managed to escape China. Um, the Uyghur Tribunal is uh, chaired by Sir Jeffrey Nice, a very well-known international law expert who was instrumental in the persecution of war criminals such as uh, Miroslav Milosevic in Serbia, in the former Yugoslavia, and the Uyghur Tribunal uh, started its work with um, two hearings and then now a third hearing this year, earlier this year, the first hearing. Uh, it's an independent fact-finding mission to establish whether the atrocities committed by Beijing against the Uyghurs, Kazakhs and others constitute crimes against humanity or possibly genocide. And this is an important question because based upon the determination of that question as to whether or not genocide is taking place at the hands of the Chinese government, governments have a responsibility to respond based upon international treaties. Is that not right? That's very true. Any government that's a signatory to the 1948 Convention for the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide is obligated not only to prosecute and punish genocide, but to act towards preventing it. For doing so, governments need to be proactive and need to look for risks of a genocide occurring. Unfortunately, the convention has never successfully prevented a genocide because governments have often been slow to respond proactively. All right. They, they tend to turn a blind eye to it. They don't want to necessarily get involved. And by the time they come to a point of saying something, it's often too late because then we have seen mass genocide at that point. That's unfortunately quite true. And even this country, the United States, has on some occasions chosen not to determine a genocide in a very, very, very problematic situation because it does trigger that obligation. You then, if you've said there's a genocide going on, you then can't just sit and, right. and, and stand by. There is a, as you said, a legal obligation to, to respond. And so uh, these uh, words that we're using here, the investigations that uh, you are doing are significant and have uh, repercussions. Now, before um, I get into what you found in these documents, uh, help our viewers and listeners get up to speed on this because there was some stories, you know, back in 2019 in the New York Times, and it was somewhat of a splash because there was information contained in here. Um, but based on this cache of documents that you have uh, now had access to, what have we found that was not initially reported? So the New York Times obtained these files in 2019, and they actually produced a surprise report in November, one week before another 
leaked confidential document was published, namely the China cables. Um, I myself was part of publishing on the China cables, which was a document that basically showed that the so-called vocational training centers in Xinjiang are to be run like high security prisons. The New York Times came out with the Xinjiang papers one week before the China cables. The Xinjiang papers really kind of set the stage because they contained more general information top secret speeches by Xi Jinping about the situation in Xinjiang. Now, as you have alluded to, the Times made several choices in their reporting. Firstly, they only wrote one report out of a very, very extensive material of 400 pages, 403 to be precise, that they got. Secondly, there were some details that they withheld about the nature of Xi Jinping's speech. And thirdly, for various reasons, uh, including, you know, that it's a newspaper and newspapers run certain stories, that the story couldn't be ridiculously long. They had to focus on certain aspects. They never run a sequel uh, with important subsequent information. For these various reasons, some significant information never came out. And most importantly, the Times never followed up because new evidence has since come, since come to light, new understanding and our increased understanding since 2019 is one of the reasons why now we can draw some very different connections here and some very important additional insight can be had from analyzing these documents. And part of that, Dr. Zinz, is the connection between the Communist Party leader, Xi Jinping, and the atrocities in Xinjiang. Is that correct? Absolutely. Now, the New York Times gave some in initial information. They, they, they said that Xi Jinping said to have absolutely no mercy against the enemies of the state in regards to the Xinjiang, uh, those who offered violent resistance. The New, York, the New York Times quoted a couple of things of Xi's speech and made a very, very general, probably quite cautious statement that Xi prepared the way for these atrocities in some way. Um, it's quite evident from my analysis that the Times chose to focus much more on other aspects of the file cache, including statements by Chen Xuanguo, uh, and in particularly a document that uh, was outlining how to respond to Uyghur students who would come back to Xinjiang from other parts of China whose parents have been put in a detention camp and now the authorities were trying to explain to those students, well, how is it that your parents are in detention? Making sure that this was not cause any kind of social uproar. A lot of the reporting of the Times focused on that particular document. It's my opinion that the Times was trying to be careful, uh, fearful, likely, protecting their reporters in China, in Hong Kong. Their focus on the words of Xi Jinping was somewhat limited. Okay, two questions on that. One, just you know, to give context to our our viewers about this, you know, when when a politician makes a speech here in the United States, it's not secret. I mean, it, it, it gets media coverage. They want people to hear it. Were these speeches that were made behind closed doors to the Communist Party officials giving them direction on the type of policies that Beijing wanted to see carried out? In many ways, yes. The interesting thing is, and of course, I'm somebody who has spent a lot of time with government documents in Xinjiang, is familiar with the language, the policy, the evolution of policy. Um, 
many of the statements of Xi Jinping turned out to be absolutely instrumental. He either said directly, you need to do this, or it was basically implied. Um, it's quite, quite stunning to draw some of the parallels, simply even just one sentence that she said, which was later on quoted in key policy documents, but in most cases never publicly attributed to Xi Jinping. So these speeches, the, this direction is all uh, the reason it was secret. It was uh, not reported in the press. It was not attributed to the president, uh, the Communist Party leader. So that's why these documents being released are explosive in connecting the links between Beijing and, and, and Xi Jinping and uh, Xinjiang. So what is what will this information prove on the international stage and how should it be responded to? This new information allows us to draw connections, mostly very direct connections, between the demands and statements of central government leaders Xi Jinping, Premier Li Keqiang, another high-profile uh, Beijing official, and almost any aspect of the unfolding atrocity in Xinjiang not just the internment campaign uh, into re-education camps, but also forced labor, which is quite has become a really major topic since then. Right. Um, birth prevention and population optimization efforts to cut weaker birth rates, sterilize women, and so-called optimize the population by reducing the percentage of the weaker population and their growth versus the percentage of the Han Chinese population. Boarding schools, separating parents from children. You just about name it and, and you find it. So just about any aspect of this atrocity can be quite directly, in some cases extremely directly, linked to the will of the central government. And that has major implications for atrocity determinations, right. including the genocide determination. I mean, that fits what you just described Dr. Zenz fits into the genocide definition. Exactly. One of the important questions of the genocide versus crimes against humanity is not just what is happening. It's also what is the intent? Is there an intent to destroy an ethnic population in whole or in part? And the question of intent uh, has been very elusive in the Xinjiang context when Pompeo, Mike Pompeo, made the genocide determination uh, back um, in January this year. Uh, he basically had to extrapolate, saying we are seeing this decline in birth rates, the birth prevention, especially together with the other measures. There's a high risk of an unfolding genocide. Um, he had to make a bit of a leap there, uh, possibly justified at the time. But we now have this information that very clearly shows that the leadership in Beijing is behind this, and that really speaks to the long-term intention right. to destroy the Uyghur group in part. That question is now answered by this cache of documents. I think it's substantially answered. Um, the determination that there's a high risk of an occurring ongoing genocide, I think, is now clearer than ever. One final question for you, Dr. Zins, going back to the Times and how they reported or didn't report on this. They're not the only media outlet that has, uh, you know, soft-pedaled the information coming out of China. Are we at a point where we really cannot trust the media and their reporting on what Communist China is doing, the party, Communist Party, the party in Communist China? 
I generally believe that the media reporting of the Western mainstream media on China has been quite solid. I've been involved in a lot of it. Um, it sometimes can go either way. Sometimes there's an element of exaggeration where there's not sufficiently hard information. Sometimes you find that the media is cautious. And I think in this case, the New York Times, they were being cautious, overly cautious. At the same time, of course, they did have people to worry about, stuff to worry about. Um, the, ma the major thing that I would fault the New York Times, I think the number one mistake that they made was to not uh, pass on the information to academics. Yeah. Academics who have more experience, who potentially don't need to fear. Uh, of course, that does depend very much. Academia can also, unfortunately, you, you have quite a range in academia, but still. Uh, or give it to somebody who can be more forthright about it. Or the United and was, Nations. I think, their major shortcoming. Yeah, I mean, the, it's information that needs to be passed on. Well, uh, Dr. Adrian Zenz, thank you for your work on this important issue, I believe. And uh, thank you for joining us today here on Washington Watch. Thank you indeed. Bye-bye. Dr. Adrian Zenz, uh, we'll be watching uh, that release on, on Thursday. But further evidence of what is happening in China is extremely problematic. And it's not just the Uyghurs. I mean, there we're bumping up against the definition of genocide, but their atrocities are widespread. Folks, out of time, thanks so much for joining us. Again, let me leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you've taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.